This morning, we continue in the Beatitudes, which are the opening portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And our text is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn? Really? It's really shocking. They're all shocking, but we're just used to them. This is what Chesterton called truth standing on its head, shouting for you to notice the absurdity. Truth standing on its head, shouting for you to notice the absurdity. This is some other ethical universe where everything seems to work backwards. Not just paradoxically, but almost absurdly. Blessed are those who mourn. This is in many ways an extension of what we looked at last week on poverty of spirit. And it shows us that it's really not sufficient for us to be poor in spirit. Though it is indispensable to be poor in spirit. We have to move from confession, confession of our spiritual bankruptcy, to contrition. From confession to contrition. This morning... This is what the poor in spirit do. And so we'll make two points. Uh, The mourning and the comfort. They're there on your bulletin. So first, the mourning. Spiritual poverty is to lead to grief and mourning. So let's just get it out on the table. (laughs) Let's just notice something stark and frankly unwelcome at the outset. Mourning, right, sustained and deep, lamentation and grief is a critical component of Christian existence. It is not a bug, right? It is not an occasional interruption. Any more than being poor in spirit is an occasional interruption. In a fallen world, it is a feature. Not sure we want to own this. Yes, it is true that the Christian life is one of joy. Laughter or a joyful heart is good medicine. We are not called to grim, cheerless existence. True. You know what else is true? The book of Ecclesiastes says it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of mirth. That means funerals are better for your soul than parties are. Funerals are better than parties. And And even Christian parties. Not sure I've ever walked away from a Christian party and thought, I'm a lot wiser for going to that. The reason funerals are better is the writer Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that at a funeral... Men get to contemplate their end, and they can gain wisdom. A thing rarely gained at a party. And so at the outset, we're going to have to deal with something complicated, mysterious. Namely this, that the Christian heart is capacious, meaning wide, Catholic, layered, deep, complex. It contains multitudes. It doesn't pit mourning versus joy as if somehow you could only be one or only have one at a time. 
Listen to Luke's parallel for this very beatitude. This is what Luke says. We're, we're using the beatitudes from Matthew's gospel. This is Luke's version. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Laughter now is not called blessed. The opposite, in fact. Woe to those who laugh now. I mean, whoever says this must be mad or morbid or dark and depressed. Maybe they don't really mean it. Maybe they're lacking joy in some fundamental way. Maybe they need to read more Chesterton themselves. Except, of course, Jesus said it. Jesus, who is never recorded laughing in the Gospels, who tells precisely zero jokes in the Gospel, apparently doesn't think that some sort of joviality, right, some sort of you know, pursuit of cheerfulness and fun, some kind of manufactured joy is a sort of integral part of human existence. He knows that this sort of flippancy should not be mistaken for true gladness. He was, after all, we are told, a man of sorrows. Man of sorrows, what a name. Has anyone ever called us that? I mean, am I mistaken? Shouldn't we be called the kinds of things he's called? I always appreciated Johnny Cash's answer when they asked him why he always dressed in all black. He said, because I, I want to carry some of the world's darkness around on my back. There's something very profound about that. I want to carry some of the world's darkness around on my back. Now, maybe we don't get this because, as I said last week, we like the cross if it means atonement and forgiveness and victory. But we don't like being drawn into the mystery of it. A man of sorrows, acquainted, not just superficially, with grief. And yet, yet, he too, this sorrowful one, was said to be anointed with the oil of joy above all his companions. You can see that in Psalm 45, which is cited in Hebrews chapter 1. So he, our Lord, was both the man of sorrows and the man of highest joy. The two are always locked together, and in this age they will always exist together. Deep sorrow is the key, even the pathway, to deep joy. And without the mourning, the joy will be hollow. Don't trust joyful people that are not mourning. So with that, let me ask this. What is being mourned here? Right. This is the question we have to ask ourselves. Blessed are those who mourn. Who mourn what? Ultimately, this must be mourning for sin. 
right? Because it is sin, it is our defection from the living God, which brings forth both death and all the miseries of this life, as our catechism puts it. You know where you can see this? You can see it in the background for this beatitude, which we read this morning in the Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 61. The Messiah comes to an Israel that is mourning in exile. And the Messiah promises Israel that he will heal the brokenhearted. Listen to these words. Israel is brokenhearted. He will provide for those who grieve in Zion. He will bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. That's the whole beatitude in Old Testament form, Isaiah 61. So the people in view in the text then are mourning their own sin. They're mourning their own sin because it's brought on this state of exile. Those who mourn, mourn first about their own sin. It is their central preoccupation. We are the worst sinners we have to deal with. Right? Those who, right, this is not being angry about other people's sins. This is mourning our own sins. The only sacrifice sinners can offer in light of the sacrifice provided on the cross is a broken and a contrite heart. You want to make some sacrificial act or offering to God? That's it. A broken and a contrite heart. Mourners with Paul cry out, O wretched man that I am. Not that they are. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? They are interior mourners. They heed the commands from the book of James. James says this, Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then he says this, Grieve, mourn, wail. How's that for a three-point sermon? And grieve, mourn, wail. James would have a very small church, a very unpopular blog. He continues, this is our Lord's brother, so we know where he got this stuff from. Change your laughter into mourning. Have you ever heard a sermon, ever, in your whole experience in Christendom, where the preacher said, I want your laughter all turned into gloom and mourning. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy turn it into gloom, James says. I wonder where he got this stuff from. Right, such people recognize that they are the chief of sinners, as Paul confesses about himself at the end of his life. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul at the end of his life confessing that he was the greatest of all sinners. Right? With Luther, the mourners, in the very first of the 95 theses that sparked the Reformation, you know what the first theses is? Here's the first theses of the Reformation. The whole Christian life is one continual act of repentance. So sure, we reject the sacrament of penance, Penance, Luther says. That's because we are always doing penance, perpetually. 
Those who mourn then, they know this command. And they know that God commands our emotions. We are commanded, you just heard that in James, to grieve and mourn and wail. Mourning begins deep in the heart, but it doesn't stay there. It grips the whole person. And then it outwardly manifests itself in contrition. And yes, in tears. Right? Tears are the spiritual equivalent of sackcloth and ashes. There's nothing, nothing morbid about this. This is not navel-gazing or introspection. Right? This is a rigorous self-examination in the holy, searching light of God. This is the ethos of Psalm 51. You know that famous psalm. It's, a, it's a, a psalm, the great prayer of David, of brokenness and sorrow and repentance. This is that ethos fleshed out across a person's life. And so what's called for here is what Paul calls godly sorrow. Think about that. Sorrow can either be godly or it can be a worldly sorrow which produces death. And so as strange and as paradoxical as it is, the blessed life, the flourishing life, is aided and sustained and even characterized by godly grief. Blessed, now listen, flourishing, delighted, honored are those who mourn. Mourning's not merely about individual sin, though. Scripture clearly teaches that the godly mourn for the sins of Zion. Remember Jeremiah weeping for his nation. And there's this extraordinary passage in Ezekiel where he's told by the Lord to go throughout the city of Jerusalem and to put a mark on the forehead of those who grieve and lament for all the detestable things done in it. Right? God wants the people who grieve marked out publicly by the prophet. Think of Daniel, who prays at great length. This is in chapter 9 of his book. And Daniel there repents not only for his own sins, but for the sins of the fathers. He's repenting for the sins of past long dead generations. I mean, you would think we'd have enough to grieve over if we just stuck to ourselves. All of these sins in the past, plus our sins, Daniel says, have led us into exile at the hands of the Babylonians. So it turns out that mourning is not some sort of um, radically individual kind of activity. The mourner understands the corporate nature of sin, that, that, that as the plight of the people of God is the mourner's concern. We are bound in solidarity with the people of God. Mourners repent over all the church's sins. And in this, of course, they are imitating who? They're imitating and reflecting the Lord Jesus. Right? The man of mourning who wept bitterly over apostate Jerusalem, even as it rejected him, even as it prepared to execute him. So mourners mourn their own sin. They mourn the sins of the church, and they mourn for the brokenness of the world, for the conditions of men and nations. 
They reject the status quo. They never settle down into sort of some sort of a comfortable agreement with it. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says that streams of water run down my face over those who do not keep the law of God. We don't have that, of course, anymore. We just have angry blog posts instead. But for the psalmist, it was weeping. It was grief. Do you remember what the prophet Habakkuk says in the opening words of the first chapter of his prophecy when the invading Babylonian armies are sweeping across the ancient Near East, just destroying everything in their path, threatening Israel? The prophet goes to God and he says to God this, How long, Lord? How long is the basic cry of mourners? How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? You know, mourners are affected by, they're affected by the absence of God from history, or at least the apparent absence, right? They have, there, there's a certain sense in which mourners have a bit of a quarrel. How long must I call for help and you don't listen? I cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why are you making me look on injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife. Conflict, injustice, the law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. This mourning of which Jesus speaks extends to the whole creation, which, like us, is groaning or yearning for the resurrection, longing to be liberated from futility and death. This, this is the time of yearning, of crying out for vindication and of groaning for the coming redemption of our bodies and the whole created order. So it turns out you're not going to be able to take mourning and shove it into a corner of the Christian life. It's simply an impossibility. The gift of the Spirit means yearning, groaning, longing. We mourn tragedies and natural disasters and all human calamities, accidents, disease, pandemics, persecution, death and all of its hideous diversity, and variety. We mourn those who suffer these things. We cry out continually until the end of time with the prophets and with the martyrs in heaven, how long, O Lord, how long? We never get to some point where somehow this cry becomes irrelevant to us. Now, it's a phenomenon that we can easily avert our eyes from. We are very good at this. But it turns out that the Bible is full of laments. The Psalms are full of laments. It's even a standard psalm form. You take a course on the Psalms, and they'll teach you the lament psalms. The prophets are full of laments, which is why we don't read them or preach from them. My colleague and friend... uh, Bill Spanger, pastor, PCA pastor at Affirmation, a couple years ago, we were driving together in a car. I said to him, Bill, what are you preaching on? He said, well, I started Ezekiel. I said, oh, my. He said, yeah, I think it might be a mistake. <laughs> it's, just the, it's just judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment, grief after mourning after tears. I said, well, yeah, you know, you got, you got 48 chapters to go. He got through it somehow. But 
The prophets are full of lament. There's even a whole book called the Book of Lamentations, which you've probably also never heard a series on. You got Jesus in the Gospels lamenting. You got Paul lamenting. You got martyrs in heaven lamenting. Turns out lamentation does not even just exist on earth right now. It exists in heaven. Where the, where the saints who were faithful on earth, who were beheaded for the word of God, are before the light and glorious face of God saying, how long until you avenge our blood? The whole thing is full of laments. And the lament form, to point out the obvious, is not a popular form in our day. There's no lamentation section in your Trinity hymnal. But let me tell you, we need more laments. We need them because now and not later, now, before the eschaton, this is the time for our tears. And again, it's not like there's not an overabundance of material. Right? The stuff is in us. It's in our hearts. It's in the church. It's falling out of the sky. You have to work not to trip over reasons for lament. In the words of Bob Dylan, the suffering is unending. Every nook and cranny has its tears. You know what else about laments? They help us to structure our grief. Like it turns out we want to flee from this mourning and lamentation. We want to find some way around it into the happy Christian life. But laments help us make sense. They orient us to the eternal and permanent things. That's why these texts, texts of grief and mourning, it is these texts which mysteriously revive our hope in the darkest of hours. I can assure you of this as a pastor. Right, try to sing songs or bring happy stop talk to someone who is bitterly struggling with the darkness or the depression or the despair of some facet of existence. But direct them to Psalm 88. Psalm 88, which was an unremitting poem of darkness. The only psalm in the Bible where there is not a single note of prayer. The psalm which ends with the psalmist saying, only the darkness is my friend. And that psalm, has been of inestimable comfort and companionship to the suffering people. So let's say one more thing about this type of mourning for ourselves, for the church, for the world. What we're talking about here involves not a shred of self-pity or self-righteousness. We do not mourn for the sins of others or for the world from some position of superiority. We mourn as sinners, for sinners, as people implicated in the problem. And even more profoundly, this kind of grief is deeply God-centered. Right? This, is, this is a theocentric activity because we are broken because we've offended the good and glorious God. Because the church for which Christ died is fragmented. And defiled. Because the world is drenched with blood. Mourning is theocentric activity. Godly mourning begins and it ends with a passion for the thrice holy God of light and love. And so the weightless God of the modern church cannot create this kind of mourning. 
Those who mourn them enter into the mystery and into the misery of the world's unremitting darkness. For that is where their Savior lived, and that is where he is still found, in in the imprisoned, in the poor, in the naked, in the hungry. And if this is too grim for us, it is only because our conception of the Christian life is too shallow, and our vision of joy is too thin. Formed much more in many cases by American optimism than it is by the prophetic scriptures of the Hebrew Bible. That's the morning. Let's get to some comfort. The second point then is comfort, or we might call this point the end of morning. So here there's good news. Those who are brokenhearted, those who are stricken with grief, those who mourn in Zion are driven, often against their wills, of course, into the arms of Jesus, the fellow mourner who bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. He has stooped, Jesus has, to share our nature and to taste our sadness. I love that hymn, Holy Ghost, Dispel Our Sadness. The world is a sad place. And often people who sense this and have this foreboding, deep, persistent sense of darkness are much more sensitive to reality than people who don't. The Lord delights. He even yearns. He calls to those who are weary and who are burdened and who are heavy laden to come to him. And in his gentleness and meekness, he gives us rest. Jesus sweetens our mourning with his presence and his grace. Right? It's his his benediction, his pardon, his word of peace and absolution. They are our comfort in this age. Remember what Simeon, the old prophet of Israel, just before he exited this life, said, called Jesus when he held him in his arm at the presentation in the temple. This child is the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. Well, why? Well, because we have a world where we need to be consoled. We need to be consoled. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. This is the famous first question, a beautiful question and answer. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is belonging to my faithful Savior. Body and soul is our only comfort in life and death. There is no feature, no facet, no dimension of my comfort that's tied to American politics and culture. My only comfort in life and in death is that I belong to my faithful Savior in body and soul. All the comfort you derive from every other place is going to be taken from you. Trust me, I've sat with a lot of dying people. They're not worried about the things we're worried about. But they do have comfort because they belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. We don't divide our comfort up, right? Our only comfort in life and death is this God who is the consolation of Israel. So that through him then, Our comfort is that we come to God the Father. And what is God the Father called in the Bible? 
The Father of mercy is the God of all comfort. Right? Because he's king over a world which is broken and shattered and needs consolation. The Father and the Son comfort us by sending the Holy Spirit and what's he called? The Comforter. So in short, our comfort consists in this. This is your comfort in life and in death. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Right? In this way, the Holy Trinity is with us to the end of the age. Now, when the text says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, it's speaking not only of this present comfort, which we just spoke of, but notice what it does. It places the accent on the future, this coming eschatological comfort in the new creation. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be, in the future, comforted. And so here we have to be frank. Without in any way minimizing the comfort that we presently have in Christ, mourning is going to remain and comfort is going to be less than full until the end. Right? Mourning is going to remain and comfort will be less than full till the end, until we are free from sin, until the church is spotless and radiant, until the nations are healed, until war cease, until the creation stops groaning. Until death is shattered, until Satan is destroyed, until the martyrs' prayers are heard and they are vindicated, until justice is done, not only in the future, but all the past. Until the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is, until we are in resurrected, immortal glory, mourning remains, and comfort is partial. Or to put it in New Testament language, the comfort we now enjoy is a foretaste of the comfort which is to come. The comfort now is the beginning of the comfort later. And so what's being promised here by Jesus is full, complete, incomparable eschatological comfort. Notice the beatitude is not, blessed are those who mourn, I'll patch it up, you know, substantially in this age. Or I'll make it, you know, 65% better. The text promises... It promises that weeping may last for the night, but full joy will come in that great morning. It promises that he who now gathers up your tears in his bottle will one day wipe every tear from every face of his beloved ones. Nothing less than that is the fulfillment or the hope of this beatitude. In other words, what's being promised is the new creation. We heard it read in the New Testament lesson. John promises that the once suffering saints before the throne of God, they will never again hunger, never again thirst. The sun will not beat down on them. The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or, notice, mourning. When does mourning end? It ends when the new Jerusalem descends from heaven. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Again, Christians are not looking for a 20% improvement. 
on the current gambit of things. We want the whole enchilada. And we want it now. That's why we yearn. That's why we groan. This is beautifully put in all the prophets, but I'll just give you one in closing. The prophet Isaiah foresees this day where he says, this is in chapter 35, he says, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come with joyful shouting to Zion and everlasting joy. Again, not fleeting joy, not temporary joy, not joy that spikes up when things go our way and spikes down when things don't go our way. Everlasting joy will be on their heads. And, the prophet says, sorrow and sighing. You know that feature of life? Sighing? (sighs) That thing? Sighing? Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You know, in the prophets, you have the deepest, in in some sense, the most grim summons to mourning. But that's why the prophets are full of these exhilarating heights where the the redeemed come to, to Zion with joyful shouting. Everlasting joy will be on your head and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Blessed are those who mourn, for they are but more so they shall be comforted. Amen.